Um, we're looking at parables this month, um, some interesting teachings of Jesus. Um, parables are stories that provide a vision for life, uh, in particular a vision for life in God's kingdom. They reveal who God is as king and how his kingdom operates. And oftentimes these parables that Jesus would teach all throughout the Gospels um, were in direct sort of uh, opposition to religious criticism he would receive by, uh, by those who thought they knew better. And Jesus, being the Son of God, as Steve said, came into flesh on this earth 2,000 years ago and disrupted uh, the social and religious order um, for all all of humanity for all of eternity and so he would teach in these parables to reveal uh, things about life things about the kingdom of heaven and even for us today they, they are so applicable and helpful for us in our everyday lives and so uh, two weeks ago we looked at the parable of the lost sheep the lost coin and the lost son in one basket. Uh, last week Anna unpacked the uh, parable of the good Samaritan which is brilliant so today we're going to be looking at a sinful woman forgiven it's going to be great. Um, before I go, I want to tell, tell a little story. And uh, I want to tell you a story about possibly the hardest day I've ever worked in my life. And I can already hear your thoughts. You're a pastor. You just drink coffee and play, play golf occasionally. What, how hard could it possibly be? Well, this is before my clerical days, okay? This is before I was a minister. And uh, when I left high school, I, uh, I got a... a management traineeship with Coles Supermarkets. And uh, God bless Coles. Amen. And uh, it's great. And where Sam used to work with me back in the day, Sam Johnston, uh, he was um, part of the crew that I would work with. And you might remember this particular day, you might have been there, or at least familiar with what I'm about to share, was um, I was 20 years of age and it came stock take time. Now, I can only think of one other place that would be worse than the supermarket to stock take, and that would be Bunnings. Um, so praise God I don't work at Bunnings. But I came, came to stock take time at Coles. I'd worked there for a couple of years. I mean, they do it every year, but this particular time, because I was in uh, a management traineeship role, they gave me more responsibility. So uh, there was a crew of us that arrived at 5 a.m. We did not leave till 9 p.m. that night, and we maybe had one or two breaks that day. It was just a massive 16-hour day where we'd have to count the entire stock on the floor, recount the stock on the floor, and do all of the storeroom, um, there's just pallets and pallets. Like, think about this room, probably twice the size of this room filled with pallets of stock. And so we had to count all that, recount that, and then enter it. And so what I mean by enter it, we have these little handheld devices, I think they were called, were they called Maxes? We have these Max devices, I'm not sure what that meant, but it was Max cool. And, and so you would have to just manually type in the product code, each item had a code, and you type in that code, enter, quantity, enter. So 943216, 62 of those, 62, enter. Throughout the whole store and throughout the whole storeroom. And I kid you not, after a 16-hour day, I got home, I put my head on the pillow, and it was like I was watching the opening scenes of The Matrix, just like numbers, just filtering down through my mind. If you're a kid and you ever played Tetris over and over again, and you go to sleep and you see bricks, and they just changed, that was like me, but with numbers, all night, just seeing these things in my mind. It was crazy. And what was interesting for me is, as I thought about um, this was, I knew every square inch of the store. Um, and to be fair, I, I was quite proud of the fact that I knew where everything was. Someone would come to me and go, Justin, do you know where this is? Yes, I do. Aisle six, halfway down, left-hand side, about knee height, next to the custard powder. Boom. Give me another product. I know where it is. 
Some products, I even knew their product code. I was like, I was a prodigy. I was a supermarket prodigy. And I say that with all humility. In fact, uh, now, Sam, I contest this. I, I still believe I hold the record for most um, cartons packed in an hour. I used to do night fill with these boys. And so being the training manager, we were sort of the, the standard for these young packers coming through. And so I would you know, flex my unpacking skills. And I remember I did a whole aisle. It was a soft drink aisle. And in one hour, I unpacked from the carton, put on the shelf, presented it, and then flattened the box. I did 115 cartons in one hour. And I don't know if that's been beaten. Sam, you might be able to correct me, but um, don't, please don't do it publicly, though. Um, but I, I, just, I, I just, I look back now and go, I hated it. But at the time, I really enjoyed working. There's a great good crew of people. But, but the point of the story is I knew, I knew the store. I knew every square inch. I knew where the stock was, how to fill it. All the, but what I didn't realize was when I did stock take and, and just spent a bunch, of, a bunch of time acutely being aware of the stock in the store of how much we actually had. Tens of thousands of products or lines of products and hundreds of thousands of items in that store. Like we're talking millions of dollars of stock just seeing that we counted, recounted and entered. And I was truly like, wow. This is cool. Like, I just see it as like one carton at a time or one order at a time. But there was a lot of stock that was in there. It was outrageous. And so it got me thinking about today's passage that we're about to read and, and our life. And that we can be so focused on stocking shelves or ordering stock that we fail to see the reality of life before us. Or more precisely, we could be so busy being a Christian or doing Christian things or being religious that we forget how much sin on hand we actually have in our life and, and the bigger price that Christ paid for us to have the life that we have. So let's read this passage today. And I've got a couple of thoughts that I want to just share about that today. So Luke chapter 7, from verse 36 all the way through to 50. Buckle up, here we go. I'm reading from the ESV in case you were wondering. Verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him, being Jesus, to eat with him. And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, let me pause there. Um, it's interesting to note here when you hear reclined at the table is not like we would understand a table. Uh, we understand table as something that's about, what are they, 700 high? I'm not sure what tables are these days. And, uh, and you would sit at a chair and people are around it and you have your meal. And it's all... Back then there were very low tables. And when you would recline at the table, you would like literally stretch out like this with one hand under your hip or under your head and you'd use the other hand it was very pompous very bougie and just grab stuff off the table and eat it like that so it was it was chilling it was reclining it was just relaxing so Jesus has been invited by this Pharisee to come and chill or recline at the Pharisee's house Jesus obliged that's the scene verse 37 and behold a woman of the city who was a sinner it's interesting to note that they made that distinction there when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask full of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, look, if this man was a prophet, he would have known what kind of woman this woman is. And so... Why would he let her touch him? Because she is a sinner. 
And Jesus answered him, saying, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. So Jesus replied with this parable. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other owed 50 denarii. When they could not pay it, he cancelled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. You may pass, go, you may collect $200. Verse 44, then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loves much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray real quick. Father, I just thank you for this passage. I thank you for this parable. I thank you for this this story that we can sometimes overlook, Lord. I pray that today you would help us to see some big truth in this small story. Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts open enough to receive the truth that you would have for us today and that there would be something in this parable that would open our lives to see the life of the kingdom that you're putting before us. We thank you this would change us forever in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, a couple of things that stood out to me as I studied through this passage. The first thing is that Jesus calls out the Pharisees' judgment of the woman. He calls it out. In verse 40, uh, 39, it says, The Pharisee said to himself. So the Pharisee sort of under his breath, snarling, like, oh, oh you know, if, if this guy really is a prophet, if he really is a teacher, if he really is the Son of God, then he should know that she is a sinner and he should not be letting her touch his feet. Like he sort of snarled snarkily at himself. So Jesus calls him out and says, Oh, really, Simon? Okay, let me tell you a story. And so I I just love the fact that Jesus didn't let that snarky comment go unattended to. What was said in sort of quiet self-reflection from Simon the Pharisee was amplified in Jesus' rebuke publicly. And so then I love what Jesus did next in in verse 44. And this is the second thing that, that I get out of it. The first thing, Jesus calls out the Pharisee's judgment of the woman. And the second thing is Jesus shames the Pharisee in comparison to the woman. So the Pharisee's thinking he's higher than, than thou, he's, he's super mighty, he's super self-righteous, he thinks he's great, he's judging this woman, he's judging Jesus' character or not being able to judge the woman's character. And so Jesus calls him out publicly and then he shames him in his own home. Gosh, I love that. You know, shame culture today is like this big thing, oh, it's a big taboo thing, but Jesus was like so ahead of the game. It was awesome. So, What he does in verse 44 is he embarrasses the Pharisee in front of the woman by showing how much she had done for him as opposed to how little the Pharisee had done for Jesus. Which, the reason this is shameful is because hospitality was such a massive thing in Jewish culture, in in first century culture. It was like, you know, they would have people in the home and they would display these immense gestures of hospitality. Like they would come and, and the first thing they would do is they would wash their guests' feet. They didn't have beautiful streets like we... They didn't have streets like ours today. They're not beautiful, but at least they're not dirt. And, 
And so they would come with, with dusty, dirty feet, and so it was customary that you would wash or at least provide water for the feet to be washed so they could come in with clean feet. And then if they were a dignitary, like in Jesus' case, a rabbi or a teacher, they would anoint them with oil and make them feel special, and they would, they would just lavish stuff on them to make their experience incredible because hospitality was a reflection of one's own life. And it was like my identity is in shaped in some regard to how well I am hospitable. In fact, the house would become open when a dignitary would come, which is why that woman was there, because people would just, when they figured out who was there, people would fold in and hang around and watch the conversation at the table. They would stand in silence. And we have no frame of reference for that. If random people rocked in, like if I had Dave and Lil for dinner, right, and then random people started rocking in and just standing around watching us talk, I'd be like, what the heck are you doing? You're the reason I've got cameras around my house now. Seriously, get out of here. But that was not the case back then. It was normal for people just to rock in and just enjoy and witness the beauty of the hospitality being displayed and just listen to the conversation between the teacher and the Pharisee and, and what was going on. So this woman had heard that Jesus was going to be there. And so she came prepared, alabaster jar, she, and she just wet her feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and then just anointed him and kissed him. And it was, it was crazy. And so... Jesus shames the Pharisee because he compared him to the woman who should be an outcast, but Jesus is saying, no, that's a fine. You did nothing for me. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't anoint my head. You didn't give me a kiss and greet me. You didn't make me feel welcome. She is a guest in your home and makes me feel more welcome in your home than you do and totally just shamed him out. And I love that so much. The third thing I get out of this is our worship well, that's the thing, because if we go back to, to her, her response, um, washing feet, kissing, anointing, um, this is symbolic of extravagant worship. This is symbolic of her, her over-the-top expression of gratitude for the love that Jesus had given her and the grace that, that he bestowed toward her. So the third point is, is our worship is proportional to, sorry, our, our worship is a proportional response to the revelation of our forgiveness. Let me say that again. Our worship is a proportional response to the revelation of our forgiveness. He who is forgiven little loves little. So if we see ourselves as um, only being forgiven a little bit, we're just going to respond with a little bit of love because, you know, I was a pretty good person and I didn't much sin, but God has forgiven me of what little sin I did have, so I will love him a little bit back. But the woman was extravagant in her worship, extravagant in her response to Jesus' love and grace and mercy because of the great sin debt that he had cancelled for her. And that was the parable, right? There's two people in debt. One has 500 bucks, the other 50 bucks. Both debts are cancelled. Which one loves the debt collector more? The one with the larger debt, obviously. Because he understood the large price that had been paid on his behalf. And so there's a, there's a, there's a sense that we, we grasp here of, of the gospel, of what we have been forgiven of. So I want to do a little exercise this morning. Don't worry, it's not physical. Um, have you ever done, this is going to sound crazy, ever done a sin stock take? Like I thought I knew Coles and how much stuff was on the shelves until I did a stock take. I actually looked at it in detail and go, wow, there's a lot of stock here. Have we ever done that with the sin in our life? Because most of us, if we haven't murdered someone, or if we haven't, you know, done something crazy like that that's got us in jail, we think we're pretty good people. 
we think we're okay. So let's do a little stock take. Um, have you ever lied? Like lied to, lied to your teacher, lied to the government, lied to your wife, lied to your mum, lied to your boss. How many times have you done that? Like obviously you're not keeping a track of it. If you are, that's a bit weird. Please stop doing that. But, but let's think back hypothetically and go, all right, how many times would I have done that? Collectively, if I was to pile all those lies up, no matter how small they, they might be, I think if we looked over a life, there'd be a decent pile. Or what about, that's just one area, what about like um, stolen stuff? Maybe, maybe you've shoplifted as a kid, maybe you've shoplifted as an adult, I don't know why you would do that, but maybe, maybe you've stolen couple of bucks from your kid's piggy bank because it was muffed today and you didn't have any coins, so you just went there to get some dollar coins. Hypothetically speaking, I'm not sure who would do that. Um, <laughs> but if you were to compile all those times where you've stolen or taken something which is not rightfully yours, how big would that pile be? What about cheated? Have cheated on a test, cheated on your taxes, cheated on a partner, cheated on... Gosh, anything. Big pile. What about lusted? Desired something that's not yours. It's corrupted your heart. Maybe looking at magazines when you're younger that you shouldn't, looking at websites, maybe looking at other people's partners or other people that aren't your partner or just desire and having this. How many times, if we were to tally those things up, have you committed in your life what about cursing someone cuts you off in traffic and you don't say bless them Lord Jesus you say other things you stub your toe and, and you don't say our father out right in heaven you say something else or hypothetically if somebody hurts you in a game of basketball and you, and you start saying purple, orange, blue, green and all other sorts of colourful language come out of your mouth uh, at that particular time. If you were to tally up cursing and, and, and coarse language. What about holding unforgiveness in your heart for longer than is healthy? When the Holy Spirit has gone, you know what, let that go. Let that go. But we don't. We hold on to that. Because somehow it brings us comfort. It brings us justification for that person's wrong. And so we hold unforgiveness. But all that does is embitter our soul and make us weaker. And it's like cancerous to our heart is unforgiveness. So if you add them up, all this, and there's, there's a hundred other categories I could go through too. And this is not like how to make you feel bad sort of a sermon. It's just getting us to, to do a sin stock take. Because we can look at our lives at a glance and go, I'm pretty good. But when you actually go and count and recount and in detail look at our life, we realize that man... I've done some pretty dodgy stuff and I've done a lot of it and I'm really maybe not as good a person as I thought I was compared to God's holy standard that he would have me live at. Now, we don't, I don't, we don't do this exercise to make you look small. We do this exercise to make God look big. Because if we can see then how much he has forgiven us because when we look at the sum total life of our sinful nature 
our rebellion against God, us doing stuff in our own strength, our own way, according to our own preferences, that are contrary to his holiness, we realize that we maybe not be the good moral person perhaps we thought we were. That maybe we are, like the Bible says, corrupt at the core, and that's why we do bad things. Maybe that sinful nature in us is what causes us to to do things that grieve the Holy Spirit. Even Paul acknowledges, he goes, I do stuff I don't want to do. And I don't do stuff that I really want to do. This is the sin nature. And so doing the sin stock take is not to make us feel small, but to make him feel and, and, and look big, to realize how much grace and love and mercy that God has poured out into your life when he saved you, when he rescued you, when he made you and called you his own. And the reason I want us to do that is because if we see our sin as little and the forgiveness God offers us as little, guess what? We love little. But if we can see the sum and mass total of our sin collectively as large and huge, that we are not that different to that woman who was labeled a sinner, but because her sin was big, her forgiveness was big, her love response was equally large. I want our love response to God, our worship to God to be extravagant and large because we realize proportionately the sin that has been forgiven in us because of the proportionate love that God has poured out toward us. We don't wallow in that sin. We relish in his grace and his mercy and his love. Romans chapter 6. Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. We don't, we don't go, yeah, God's forgiven my sin. He's so gracious and loving. I'll continue to do it. No, no, no. That's, that's the exact opposite of the gospel. We have been set free to live a life of holiness, to pursue holiness. This is the beauty of the gospel. We can acknowledge our sin, but in doing so, we acknowledge our Savior even more. So good. This is the beauty of the gospel, that our worship and love towards God is proportionate to the revelation we have of the sin in our life that's been forgiven. So, I want us to finish with these two considerations. Are we like the Pharisee? Self-righteous, thinking we've got it all together, and judgmental of the sins of others while living in the denial of the true depth of our own sinfulness. Because that was him. That was, that was Simon the Pharisee. He was self-righteous. He saw himself as having it all together and therefore was judgmental of the sins of others, or the woman in particular, while living in denial of the true depth of his own sinful nature and desires. So are we like him? Or are we like the woman acutely aware of our sin and incredibly grateful for God's forgiveness and it shows by the way we love and worship him. Who are we in that story? I like to think that we, we're the woman. We're aware of our flaws. We know that we do things we shouldn't do and we, we don't do things we know we should do. But we also know how great God is. We also know that the incredible price that Jesus paid on the cross to forgive us of our sin, to give us brand new life. And when we see the largeness of our sin that's been forgiven, then proportionally we can, large, we can worship and love with a large heart, with a generous heart, and pour everything we have out to God because of what he has first done for us. Why is this important? Because hell is much worse than we think. And forever... And sorry, forever is so much longer than we realize. 
Hell is much worse than we think, and forever is much longer than we realize. That's why this is important. I think we don't have often a, an awareness of, of hell because we sort of drift through life, like it's all good, life's pretty good. Especially in Western culture, we don't really lack for, for much. We're pretty comfortable and so, you know, we're all, all pretty good. But, but the reality is we're, we're playing an eternal game um, and, and there is a spiritual war waging right now in this world. Flick on the news, like, come on, like, there is a spiritual battle of dark versus light raging for the souls of humanity. I'm not going to get caught into some weird, you know, rabbit holes of conspiracy theories and stuff like that, but, but the simple fact is that there is an enemy. I preach about how great God is, but there is an enemy who's trying to sabotage you and I. He, he roams around like a roaring lion. He's not a roaring lion. Jesus is the roaring lion, the lion of Judah. He has all power, all authority. He's the king of the metaphorical jungle. But our enemy, our adversary, he's an accuser of the brethren. He accuses you of your sin. He likes to keep you, he likes to do the sin stock take, but leave it at that. See how bad you are? Look at all the stuff you've done. Let me just pull up this code, 943212. Oh, oh, okay, look at this. This is, this is, uh, this is lying. Look at you. And this is the quantity. Yes, and he'll, he'll provide the report to you. Okay, look at all these things you've done. And he'll condemn you. He'll hold you in, in guilt and shame. And he does that to prevent you from approaching the Holy of Holies, to, from coming to God's throne room of grace with a spirit of gratitude and thankfulness. And that's the war we're, we're facing right now. Convincing you that, hey, he might even be nice about it. Go, look, you've done some bad stuff, but you're a pretty good person. You, could, you can fix it in your own strength. You can continue. And that sin, that's not that bad. Like, you, of course you can look at those websites. That's fine because that's not hurting anybody. You know, you know, yeah, sure, I know your wife doesn't know about it, but that's even better. She doesn't know about it because that way, you know, she's not going to be upset with you. So you can continue to do that. And it's not like you're, you know, you're paying for it. So they're, they're providing a service you're paying for. So it's not that bad, really. And who are you actually hurting? Because all this stuff is, you know, that's, we, we get that, but we can justify this stuff. And that's what the enemy will do. He'll allow us the, the freedom to justify our sin and keep us far from God. This is the battle. And right now you're in your seat listening to this, and there is a battle for your soul going on right now. And that, that pull in your heart that's, 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 that's trying to, to pull you towards freedom, that's God saying, yeah, come out, come with me. Cast your cares on me because I care for you. I've got a life, a free life for you. Would you follow me? But the enemy goes, no, 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 it's okay. You don't need to do that. You don't need, you're okay. As you are, you're okay. You'll be fine. And Jesus is saying, no, no, without me, you're not okay. Hell is much worse than you think. Forever is far long, much more time than you realize. And we have one shot on this life to make peace with God, if you like. And all that means is, crossing that line of faith and saying, God, I'm sorry. I can see the stock take sheet and it doesn't look good for me. But here's the truth, right? When we hold the stock take sheet of our life and our works and our sin up against God, we are in deficit on every line, in every category, because he is holy and we are not. 
And so we look at that sum total and we go, man, someone's got to pay for that. Because according to, the, to, to God's holiness and God's perfection, he requires perfection. And all of my stock take of sin list is far short of that. So who's going to pay this bill for me to have that holy life? Jesus went, I will. I'll do it. Send me, Lord, I'll go. And so John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he would then send his only son that whoever should believe in him shall not perish as their stock take sin list should entitle them to but have eternal life because on that cross Jesus paid in full every debt, every deficit. So when we realize that, we are like the 500 denarii men in debt that Jesus paid the price for in full because we couldn't pay it in our own strength. It was our own strength that got us into debt in the first place. It's not our own strength that's going to get us out of it. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, allowing us to see what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross to then receive by faith the price paid in full for his once and for all sacrifice for all sin. And I've said this before, you know, usually at Easter, you know, when we hear people say, oh, maybe you haven't, in which case now you, you are going to hear it. People go, well, on the cross, Jesus stretched out his arms like this to show us this is how much he loves us. Oh. So Jesus loves us a roughly six foot one amount of love. If your stretched out arms are about the same size as your height. I'm six four, but I'm assuming Jesus was slightly smaller than me because I'm a little bit larger than the average. Anyway, let's round it down to six foot. We, we are saying by that kitschy little statement that Jesus' love is six foot long. But the reality is, when he stretched out his arms on the cross to die for the penalty of all sin, he stretched out to the beginning of time when Adam and Eve ate that first fruit and he stretched out this way to the very last sin that any human would ever commit before he returns. And on that cross, every single sin in between those two points was nailed to him and the price was paid in full for those who come to faith in Jesus. So when we do the sin stock take, we might feel bad on the inside or in our head, but in our heart we know that that has been forgiven. That has been, we've been set free from that debt. We've been set free from that, that the ugliness that is our sin. Which is why, when we realize how bad that is, we realize how good God is and how much our love and our worship for him should be proportionate. And whenever Jesus is around, whenever we're around Jesus, we're going we're gonna to just shed tears at his feet in worship because of how much he's done for us. And we'll just use our hair if we have to, to clean his feet to show honor. We will take whatever we have that's costly to us, this anointing and this alabaster flask, and we will anoint him with it to show how much we love and respect him and welcome him into our life. Worship is costly. And so is the price he paid for us on that cross. And so I'm going to finish there. But I said before that I'll give an opportunity for people to respond and people to cross that line of faith. And Jesus really is the way, the truth, and the life. And, and nobody gets to the Father. Nobody gets to heaven. And here's the thing, right? Yes, hell is far worse than we know. And forever is far longer than we realize. But also heaven is far greater than we understand it too. It's far more glorious like imagine a place, the Bible describes it, where every tear is wiped away. That there is no more suffering. I can't, I can't even imagine that. Everywhere I go in life, I'm here right now and I'm looking in this room and there is suffering in this room. 
I'll jump in the car to go home and there'll be some sort of suffering in the, within the five of us in that car in some respect. My son's got an ear infection right now. He is suffering. My wife is married to me. She is suffering. <laughs> Pray for her. But heaven is far better than we realize because there is no suffering. There is no pain. There is no torment. There is no accusation. There is nothing but freedom and life to the fullest, which is the exact life that Jesus came to give us on this life while we wait to go to the next one. But that comes at a price, and that's surrendering our life to pick up his. Saying, God, you know what? I want to step out from the life that's led me to this stock take list of sins. I want to receive the payment in full that is through forgiveness and through your sacrifice on the cross. And I want to step into a new life free from the baggage of the past to live in hopeful optimism of the future with your, with your Holy Spirit in my heart in the present. So if that's you today, and you're like, you know what, I need to become a Christian. I need to receive the forgiveness of God the Father for my sins to become a brand new creation that I think differently, act differently, and see things differently, and also then have a, 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 a hope and assurance that when this life passes, and it will, that I'll be in heaven forever with him, which is far better than I can realize and far longer than I understand. So if that's you here today, if you're like that woman who realizes that you're a sinner, I pray that you would also realize that God is so gracious and forgiving. And you might make a decision today to follow God and surrender your life to Him and make a moral mistake this afternoon and stuff up tomorrow. I'm not going to condemn you for that. That happens. If you're willfully looking for it, that's probably a different issue. But sometimes things just happen. I get that. So what we're... What I'm not projecting is perfection. That you come to Jesus and you get your life in order in order to present yourself perfect. No, no, no. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still imperfect, God offered salvation for us. Right now, in the darkness of your life, no matter how bad it might be, God's grace is available to you without you having to do anything because it's already been done for you. So why don't we just close our eyes right now. I'm going to pray a prayer. I want us all to pray this. I'm going to pray and I'm going to mean it because it's going to be like a re reaffirmation of my heart's position towards God. But if you're praying this prayer after me and you mean it and it's maybe the first time you've said it and you've meant it or maybe you've wandered from God and you're praying this prayer and it's a prayer for you to come back to God, to recommit your life to Him, I, I really want to see you after the service. I want to hug you. I want to shake your hand. I want to encourage you because you've made the best decision you could ever make in your life. This decision changes everything. Changes this life on earth and the one that is to come. Let's pray this prayer together. Dear Lord, I thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me, to pay the price for all my sin that I could not pay for myself. So today, I receive forgiveness of all my sin and I acknowledge that my debt is paid in full. I thank you, Lord, that my days ahead 
I will serve you. I will love you and I will worship you. And I'll live with a thankful heart in all I do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.